By the time you listen to this podcast, the 2020 Bella News gear issue will likely already be on newsstands. Please pick it up. Check it out. We have a great cover image with lots of different pieces of gear. And that is the focus of this year's gear issue. Yes, we have lots of bikes, gravel bikes, road bikes, mountain bikes, all sorts of good bike technology. But this year, we really turned an eye on the accessories, components, pieces of apparel, shoes for both men and women. Uh, that help you enjoy riding a bike. Dan Cavallari, our tech editor, spent several months compiling some of the really cool, innovative gear out there that uh, was going to get you out there to, to race and ride on the road, on gravel, on mountain bikes, things like linkage suspension forks, Dyna plugs, accessories for your bike rack, things you can put in your garage. Um, we have more than 100 different pieces of gear for you to nerd out on. So it is the News Gear Issue 2020. Check it out. Lots of cool gear for you to indulge in. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Uh, welcome back to the Vell News Podcast. Fred Dreyer here, coming to you from a chilly morning in Boulder, Colorado. We have so much bike racing going on. I don't even know where to begin. The UAE tour is going on. We have track worlds coming up. Omloop at Newsblad. Races I've never even heard of. Last week, we talked all about the Tour of Columbia and how impressive it was. Uh, this week on the podcast, we are going to catch up with James Start, our correspondent, to talk all about French racing. And then the second half of the show, we're going to catch up with Betsy Welch, who wrote a great piece about the Betty Bike Bash, an all-women's uh, mountain bike festival that uh, faced some financial hard times, came back from the brink. It's a great story about how an all-women's cycling event found a way to survive. Uh, but before we get to that, we need to catch up with James Start because uh, last week on the podcast, myself and Rebecca Reza talked all about the Tour Columbia and how amazing it was and truly amazing race. But there was a big rider who was not at the Tour of Columbia this year, and that was Nairo Quintana. Uh, Quintana was racing in France, and it was all part of this very interesting story for 2020 of Nairo Quintana having transferred to a French team and what that means for both the French team, Arkea Sensic, and for Nairo Quintana. So James, you were at this race, the Tour of Provence. Nairo Quintana won the Queen's stage up to Mont Ventoux and won the overall. It was this great thing. Um, set the scene for us. What can you say about Quintana, him choosing to race this French race instead of the Tour of Columbia and, and what it meant for him to win? Well, it means a lot of things, Fred. Um, a, a, uh, for me, it means that this is one of, this is absolutely one of my favorite races. I think it's one of the most beautiful races out there. And it's a part of a whole new generation of young French races that are coming up gaining a lot of traction and gaining a lot of great riders. And Quintana is just the latest of, of many of them. Now, why did Quintana show up? I think it's pretty, I think the basic crux of that answer would be simply that he just signed with this new French team and they don't want to have him hold up in Colombia uh, where they're struggling to get news stories about their new star. They want him over in France at their, at their biggest races, one of the biggest races for their sponsors and their public and showing him off. And they did more than that because he's won now, not one, but two races. He just won the tour, uh, of the Alps, uh, Maritime and Oudvar, the old race of the tour de Oudvar. And the week before on the heels of that, he won, uh, the tour de la Provence. Both of them, he did in tremendous style. Um, actually setting a record up the Mont Ventoux. Now they didn't go all the way to the summit. They went to the intersection at Chalet Renard, which is about 10 K, 6 K from the finish. 
10K up. But that 9 or 10K stretch is considered the most, the most, the steepest part of the Ventoux and the hardest. And anybody who's ridden the Ventoux knows what I'm talking about. You just, you come out of the town of Bedouin, you ride for about 4K, slightly kind of false flat, and you do this big swooping left hand turn, and it's just this wall for the next nine kilometers. And there is one turn for nine kilometers. Otherwise, it is just straight up pitch. It's a really hard um, part of the climb. And it gets timed, you know, uh, it's, they make time splits of this when people go all the way up to the top. And the, pre- the fastest time split in history from the bottom of that climb, uh, that turn that I'm talking about, until the top of Chalet Renard is, was set in 1994 by Marco Pantani, uh, who was chasing after, <coughs> after, um, Eros Poli, if, if anybody can remember Eros Poli, this giant of a rider who took a, took a flyer early on the stage up the Ventoux, got a 20 minute lead. And this guy, nobody should ever have won the, I mean, if there was one guy that was not going to win the Mont Ventoux stage that day, it was him. And he held on to win. The race behind him, however, saw Marco Pantani just blazing away, hit the summer, you know, hit and, and, and set pretty much the record, uh, for, at least for that part of the climb, uh, trying to chase down, uh, Eros Poli. Uh, it turned out to be a failed attempt, but it remains the record for that nine, 10 kilometer section of climbing. And that was, you know, Pantani at the height of his career, almost at the height of his career at the Tour de France, where everybody's at the, you know, the height of their form. And this is Naira Cantana in February, um, where nobody's assuming he's at the height of his conform, his conform. So, you know, even though it's hard to compare 20, 30 years later and two different riders, two different times of the year, it's a pretty impressive statement that he made on the mobile phone too. Everybody said it. And it was confirmed uh, this past weekend uh, in uh, Ovar, where he won on the Coldez, the famous Coldez climb, which was always a killer climb uh, in Paris-Nice and, um, and other races like that down there. And he just dusted everybody. And his competition said, you know, he's a, I mean, they were using Thibaut Pinot, Thibaut Pinot called him imperial. Um, Roman Bardet called him untouchable. Obviously, uh, Quintana is at another level. He came, came out of, you know, a winter in Colombia at altitude. He's flying and it's done amazing things for this team. They have trans- been transformed in the early season, not only because of him, but also of, of the, another hire that they made, which was, um, the French sprinter Nasser Bouheni, who came off a terrible year, winless for, you know, a star sprinter and won a stage in the Tour of Saudi Arabia. And, and within a week later, won the opening stage of the Tour de Provence. So all of a sudden they're looking at six victories between them in the first month of racing. Is there another team that's got six race victories right now? I don't even know if de Kooning has that. So I think anybody would be happy with that kind of record. And this is a second level pro continental team that's just killing it. So it's been interesting to watch the transformation uh, of, of the team. Uh, and, and it's been very, you know, obviously very positive and they go, they're going into races like Prairie East with all kinds of confidence. Yeah. I think there's a lot going on there. That's of interest. The first thing is that, you know, look in the sport, we've seen plenty of high profile transfers gone wrong over the years. I think back to all the big marquee riders when they would leave quick step, you know, Marcel Kittel goes to Katusha and it just doesn't work out. Um, Nikki Terpstra goes to Total Direct Energy and it's not going great. And, you know, we've seen other GC riders, you know, marquee riders make a good go of it. Vincenzo Nibali, I feel like, is a guy who's been able to transfer from one team to the next and still maintain his form and, you know, keep, a, you know, his crew of people around him. Alberto Contador was the same. So when I, you know, read that Nina 
Jairo Quintana was leaving Movistar, the team that he went pro with, that he started with in the world tour, that he had so much success with and was going to this pro Conti French team. I'm not going to lie. I thought, okay, that's the end of Quintana. We're not going to see this guy anymore. This, I was, I was very ready to chalk this up in the, this, this is going to be a bust. This transfer is going to go bust. And to see him come out and have this level of success this early, um, it's tremendous for him. I mean, is this going to guarantee him a podium spot at the Tour de France or success at the Tour? No, obviously it's going to be later in the season and a deeper field. But the fact that he came out of the gates, um, this strong, I, I mean, it, it, like you said, it's already a success for the team. I mean, RKS Samsic, they're getting, their sponsors are getting lots of press and, um, lots of visibility at, at these races. Um, the second thing I think about is that, Quintana skipped the Tour of Colombia, his big hometown race, and the Tour of Colombia, you know, millions and millions of people out along the side of the road to watch Egan Bernal and Richard Carapaz and these other South American stars. Um, when I had Rebecca Reza on the podcast last week, before we started, she pulled up a copy of the big uh, Colombian newspaper, and on the front page of the sports page, it had a big picture of Quintana. And the big headline was about Quintana winning Le Tour de Provence. And the secondary story was about uh, that stage's action at the Tour of Colombia. So, I mean, whether his team knows it or not, they're getting they're getting their money's worth of Colombian uh, <laughs> exposure right there. Well, well um, you know, we just uh, I just did a feature on on, on the uh, sort of it's hard to say the renaissance or rebirth of, of the Arkea team because. They were actually been waiting to, you know, to, to come out and, and break through for many years. But, um, I, I look back at, at, at the evolution of the team a bit and, and what these two transfers, uh, because I think you have to right now put Buani in there as well. Um, I think both those riders, I think you're, you know, the skeptics said both these guys are going to struggle to ride at the same level. And right now it's, it's quite the opposite. Buani's got a reason to be motivated and he's, he's flying. He's winning races. He hasn't won. Uh, in a while. And then, of course, Quintana, uh, has, is, is a different rider right now. And the Quintana thing is, uh, particularly interesting because there was, yeah, I mean, a lot of reason to, you could, there's plenty of reason to be skeptical. I mean, he's leaving the major Spanish team where, where he is, you know, was born, pretty much born and raised as a professional. Going to a, a small French team doesn't have anywhere near the same structure support, doesn't speak Spanish, and he's not, what I would consider a, a real polyglot, and and yet he's bloomed there. And I think the reasons are many, and they might not have been immediately evident, but there there are several. Um, I would say one is is you can't ignore is the team director who is Yvon Le Danois, who was his DS at Movie Star for the first two years, and then and then uh, and then Yvon I've known him since his photos. He went to BMC. Uh, for for several years, and then came over to um, to Fortuneo, which became Arkea about three years ago. Uh, he's a Spanish speaker. He understands Spanish racing. He understands the Spanish mindset, the Spanish team structure, and he speaks Spanish. And he understands Nairo Quintana. Um, and he said very clearly, you know, he said, "I knew Nairo before. I know him today. The guy is the same. The difference is when I knew him." Uh, when he was starting out, he was not a Vuelta España winner or a Giro d'Italia de, de, de winner. He is that now. Nairo is a big champion. He only has big ambitions. And one of the things he said was, I think it was important that Nairo changed. Uh, here he knows he has a team that's 100% devoted to him. And as we all know, he could never say that at Movistar. If he could, he might have won the Tour de France last year. 
because uh, he was in that break and it was his own teammates uh, on the, you know, that when the, the stage he won on the Glibier, that started chasing him down. Everybody's going, what the heck is happening here? Um, you know, Spanish racing tactics, go figure. I don't know. But uh, he's not going to have that problem at Arkea, that's for sure. Uh, everybody's behind him, including the French national champion, uh, Warren Barguil, you know, um, who's coming to life as a, as a, you know, a support rider and a teammate and a collaborator with him. So I think there was a whole lot of things, while there was plenty of room to be skeptical, there were a whole lot of things that were not immediately evident that are showing themselves to be uh, very obvious uh, right now. And I think, obviously, it's way too early to predict the tour, but I, I would not be surprised to see him on the podium in Paris-Nice. Um, Quintana is an amazing rider. Uh, he can ride in the wind of the opening stages in Paris-Nice if he's got the support. He was in the front echelons last year on the hardest stages where the race was all blown apart in Paris-Nice. Uh, you put together, if you got one guy that can ride the wind and, and chaperone him through, he will not lose a wheel. So he can ride Paris-Nice. And the form he's got going now, the team, the form the team's got going, don't be surprised to see him as a real contender in Paris-Nice next week, in two weeks. So James, what can you tell us about this Arkea Samsic team? I mean, I'm sure a lot of listeners remember them when they were Fortuneo. They're this pro-Conti team out of France, perennial wild card getter for the Tour de France, but not a world tour caliber team you know they seem to be the squad where big french champions when they've kind of you know come on a string of bad luck at the world tour take a step down to i mean i'm thinking of barguil i feel like there's been a couple other french big stars uh spent some time well, yeah. andre greipel last year huh? greipel with uh fortuneo it's sort of like one of these teams that's just below the level of world tour even though there's a big chasm from a funding and level of professionalism standpoint that uh, that separates that but you know a team that year in year out is getting invites to the tour de france and other big races um what can you tell us about the history and the ambitions of this of this program yeah well it's it's been interesting to watch i know them well and i photographed the team for many years i know them uh, really very well the team, um, you know, it's one of those French teams that because they're French, they don't necessarily have to be world tour to get into the Tour de France, like Total, Direct Energy, for example, as long as their results are solid. They got in last year really um, by the skin of their teeth, I think, um, if the uh, uh, if the uh, Vital Concept team had had better performance, I think they would have probably gotten a nod, but they didn't. They were both very mediocre early season. And because, uh, because, uh, Arkea had Warren Barguil, uh, they decided to, uh, the tours stayed with, with Barguil. But, and, and yes, they've often been sort of the last team to get selected in the tour, the weakest team on paper. And yet they've often, like in the team classifications, finished in the top 10. So they have good riders on the team, but they lacked a big star. Uh, and they were, and that star that was working. Now they've been trying for several years, uh, in 2000, uh, 17, they picked up, uh, Gianni Mersman, which was a very good call. He was a really, a very good punchy sprinter out of quick step, wins a lot of stages, won a lot of races, would have won a lot of these French races for them. And potentially, you know, he'd won a stages in the Vuelta and could have potentially won some stages in the tour. But then he had, he no, no sooner signed with them and he had a heart condition and had to stop his career. So there was a huge salary that just went on hold for a year and they were not able to capitalize in 17. But then they picked up. Uh, Barguil. And we, you know, I mean, he was coming off a, you know, an amazing season where he was, uh, two, two time stage winner in the tour in Polka Dot Jersey. But he was doing that on a team, uh, on a foreign team where he was not the only leader and he was able to operate without much pressure. Coming back to France, getting the pressure of leading a French team in France, 
uh, he had, he really struggled with that. And, uh, and started to show his colors last year when he won the French championships. And I think he finished 10th in the tour this last year, but still it's not at the same level. But, you know, he's coming back up. Anyway, what I'm saying is even this is not a world tour team. They've had a lot of, they have, they have a, a good group of riders to support a very good rider. And I think they finally found that in Nairo Quintana. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's the big question is like, what does Quintana uh, make of this reset? Um, he has been under an intense scrutiny at Movistar the last few years. You know, he was, to, you know, 2013, the big coming out show, the next Tour de France winner, Columbia's first Tour de you know, he was he was going to be Columbia's first Tour de France winner. He was on the podium a few times. He wins the Giro, wins the Vuelta, you know, always kind of a contender at the Tour. But then in the last few years, um, you know, struggled to finish in the top five. He's had to share leadership duties with Alejandro Valverde. There's just been an intense scrutiny around him. And, you know, I, I wasn't surprised when he left Movistar. But again, it was just a surprise for him to take um, a step down, seemingly a step down to this French team. But now I, I feel like that's this is now one of the most compelling storylines of the 2020 yeah. uh, World Tour season. It's like, what does this mean for Quintana as he goes to the tour? I guess we're going to get to see him at uh, Paris-Nice. I would imagine he'll probably be, be doing the Dauphiné um, as well. But, you know, keep your eyes on Quintana and this French team. Where are we going to see a Quintana renaissance, a big storyline for 2020? So coming up this weekend, James, we have some other very interesting French one-day races uh, going on in the Royal Bernard Drum Classic and the Fawn Ardèche Classic. Um, you know, this is these two races are in line with a story that you've been covering with us over the last two weeks, which is the rebirth and the re-energizing of French cycling around some of these marquee races. Um, what's the history here? You talked offline about how when you first started covering the sport 30 years ago, France had this very robust lineup of early season races, Tour de Med, some other races, and then they went away. And now it sounds like there are some big races coming back. Yeah, I mean, they were, you know, you start with the uh, Grand Prix de l'Ouverture, the Marseillaise, and then uh, you go to Etoile de Bessèges, and they still are there. Then you had the Tour Med, uh, but that's no longer there. You had a lot of, like, you know, the Haribo Classic and some of these other races uh, that have gone by the wayside. Uh, but in the last few years, um, and in the meantime, you know, uh, we were going to the Peloton spending its, uh, uh, its uh, winters in the Middle East or in, in Australia, and, and there are still races there are still doing them, obviously. But there have been... Uh, a resurgence of certain races and the Tour de Provence, Tour de la Provence, picked up pretty much where the Tour Med uh, left off, except it's only a four-day race, but it's a gorgeous race, hard race. Uh, it's got a nice little spot in the calendar and it's getting year in and year out uh, a great little field, a great, a great field. I mean, we had Cantana, um, uh, we had Thibaut Pinot, we had Bardet, we have uh, all kinds of riders there. So it's, it's a wonderful race. Uh, and usually a very telling race. Uh, I saw Philippe Gilbert win a, a stage there last year, and he was so impressive the way he won. I knew he was going to pop it in Roubaix, uh, and I could tell. And I was one of you know, I, I had him down on my you know my my uh, Velo Games fantasy team for Roubaix, and a lot of people thought I was crazy. But I could just it's a, one of those great warm up races when you guys are riding well there. You know they're gonna they're gonna have a good spring. And then uh, this week uh, this weekend uh, we will be going down to. Uh, the Drum and Ardèche Classics, which I've been covering for about the last five, six, seven years. Another young race, but a lovely race, and one that riders really, really flock to. Um, 
Bardet's had it on his calendar. Alaphilippe, uh, you know, his first race since he raced in Colombia. Uh, it's been on his calendar for months. Vincenzo Nibali is going to be there. Uh, all kinds of, you know, good riders are going to be there. These are, are very hard, uh, hilly, punchy races. I'm not saying it's a climbing race, but you've got to be, you know, they, Bardet has soloed to the to victory here. It's been victories uh, with a 50-man up field sprint. Uh, there's different, all kinds of different scenarios, but it's hard racing. It's good racing. The riders like it. It's back to back. And it's also uh, probably the best weekend, you know, for those who aren't the classic riders who aren't doing Het News, Blood and Kern this weekend, this is the, you know, the best alternative that they, they have. Um, and so it, it continually gets a good field of people who are trying to get, you know, a little bit, a little bit of form before Perry Nice or before Strada Bianchi or Terreno. Uh, and then, you know, to set them up for the, the classics and stuff. So it's, it's a, it's a, they're wonderful races. They're beautiful races. I'm going to be covering them um, with a lot of uh, energy, and, and I'll be on the motor for both of them. So there's going to be lots of great imagery coming out, and um, I think great racing. They're just wonderful races. Yeah, I'm looking at this profile for the Drum Classic, and you know it's 160 kilometers. That's that's a hard day in the saddle. And the last oh boy, 30 kilometers just looks like shark's teeth with uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight punchy climbs coming in succession so you can see how this um this is a good warm-up for our dens this is a good warm-up for you know even some grand tour guys trying to get some good um hard efforts in their legs early um you mentioned that we have nibbly here is going to be here alaphilippe Bardet, some of these big um champions what are the storylines that you're going to be following um at these two races well uh as all good races there's tons of them right um Bardet, is, like I said, is a very special place in his heart. He's having fun racing, and he had a terrible season last year. No wins outside of the polka dot jersey. Um, and has decided to pretty much scrap, you know, his previous program and just do a lot of different uh, races uh, that he enjoys. So he'll be doing the, or he's always wanted to do, like the Tour of Italy, obviously. But the drum and Ardesh races are ones that he really likes, and he knows they're good, so he'll be here. Alaphilippe um, has... Uh, I don't think he's raced here for years, but um, after Argentina and Colombia, he knows that these are great races to get ready for Perry Nice. Uh, it's the, their last sort of warm up before Perry Nice, so that'll be good for him. Uh, and Nibali, um, I'm well, I'm not sure why he's here because I don't think he's doing Perry Nice, but I think he just wanted some good races, uh, you know, reasonable weather, uh, good hard races, and that's what these are. Um, and they're obviously well suited for a guy like that. So there's going to be a whole, um, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how these guys do. Um, I think they're, we, you know, I don't know if a guy like Nibley really cares about winning, but I would be surprised if he doesn't come here looking to test his legs and looking to, to make some serious efforts, which means attacks. Yeah, and this is a cool uh, region of France, too. It's south of Lyon. It's just west of the uh, French Alps and sort of that Grenoble area. Um, east of the Massif Central. I mean, what can you say about the the terrain around there? And also, just I mean, I, I imagine it's going to be pretty warm down there. Uh, let me think about that for a second. <laughs> uh, I've had the rain gear on, uh-huh. uh, on so but I'm hoping uh, that you're you're correct with that pronounced. Um, it's it's pretty much what it is. Essentially, is is two races in the heart of the Rhone River Valley, uh, south of, of Valence. And the Drome is on one side of it and the Ardèche is the other. So one day they race in the Ardèche and then, and then, and we come in, we bomb down this hill and with the Rhone River Valley, uh, underneath us, 
And then at the end of the day, you cross over and you cross over to the other side and you, you, uh, you, you ride on the other side, which I think, I think, uh, I forget which race is first. I think Jerome is first and Ardesh is second or is it vice versa? I can't even remember, but slightly different terrain, very popular races. We go some, through some beautiful villages, just packed with fans and, just uh, I I really I'm really I wasn't able to go last year for some uh, some personal reasons and I'm very happy to be coming back this year. Well, excellent. Well, stay tuned to VelaNews.com for James's coverage of the Fon Ardèche and the Drum Classics. I'm excited to see your images from them too. Just looking at the map and the profile and having been through Valence and some of that area. I mean, it's beautiful. It's just, it's just picturesque, beautiful countryside, little postage stamps, little towns everywhere, um, steep climbs. Um, I think it's going to be some really great racing down there. Um, so you can find James's coverage of these events on VelaNews.com um, this coming week. And James, thank you so much for chiming in on the podcast this week. Yeah, thanks for having me, Fred. It's always a pleasure. Okay, we're going to catch up with Betsy Welch in a moment to talk about the Betty Bike Bash. First, a quick break. Uh, welcome back to the Vela News Podcast. Fred Dreyer here. I am now joined by our senior editor, Betsy Welch. Betsy, we're going to talk about a story that you wrote for VelaNews.com this past week about the Betty Bike Bash. The Betty Bike Bash was, is one of the most successful and largest uh, women's only mountain bike festivals on the planet. Uh, it takes place in Lakewood, Colorado, right down the street, actually, from where I grew up. Um, this past year, though, the event faced some financial hard times, and you did a great story exploring the event, the financial hurdles it uh, faced, and then how the two co-founders found a way to keep it going. Um, Betsy, what can you say about this event in general, um, why it was launched, and why it was so successful? So the Betty Bike Bash, like you said is going to be 11 years old this year. Um, 11 years ago, um, Amy Thomas, who's a local mountain biker in the Denver area, um, she'd been racing kind of on the pro cross country circuit and, you know, loved racing, but also was kind of like, you know what, there's some things about racing that aren't really that inclusive. Um, wouldn't it be cool if there was a race that wasn't expensive or didn't require travel or your whole weekend and maybe the course wasn't so hard. Um, and so she was like, I, I can do this. Um, she pitched her idea to Yeti Cycles and um, the Betty Bike Bash was born. Um, and I guess the, the key point was that um, she wanted it to be women's only because she did not see a lot of women out there racing with her. Um, and thought that maybe if you took away some of these barriers that um, more women would sign up, it would be easier to do a mountain bike race. So that's kind of the origin story. Um, and the race was a hit from the beginning. When you think about the components, though, of like why this event um, resonated with women and why it was successful, especially for women of like various degrees of expertise and, you know, experience in the sport, um, why do you think it was successful? I mean, it's one thing to have an event and say, okay, you know, this is just for women, but it's another thing to come up with a formula that really is inviting and attractive. I think I said it in my piece um, that sometimes 
you know, it's one thing to, to have women in a race and have men there beside them um, and, and say, well, that's inclusive. But sometimes for women to feel comfortable, I think, um, in certain arenas, um, they just need their own thing. Um, and the Betty Bike Bash did a really good job of making it their own thing, but also, I mean, including everyone from the never ever have race to the pros and everyone hung, hung, hangs out together, hung out together. And that, that really appeals to people who may not be part of the quote bike scene. You know, I talked to someone who's, who's done like six or seven of the events and she was like, I'm not a hardcore biker and I don't hang out with hardcore bikers, but at the Betty Bike Bash, you can all kind of coexist and that's really comfortable and that's really um, inclusive. Yeah, I mean, think about the venue too. So this is Bear Creek Lake Park. Um, I've been going there since I was a kid and it has a cool trail network, but it definitely has like a lot of beginner trails. And it sounds like one thing they would do is, yeah, have these different categories like super novice category where it's, you know, six or eight miles all the way up to the pro expert, which is long and technical and much harder and like wasn't there like a, a mom's category or something like yeah, that? I like, mean, there's like all these different yeah. categories, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, I think the new mom category, if you'd had a baby in the last 18 months, you could race in that category, which is super cool. So this event um, is launched 11 years ago. It gains momentum, soon grows into having, you know, cast of hundreds show up. Um, and then at the beginning of 2019, it sounds like, uh, it faced this sponsorship shortfall, which look, a lot of events do so, but I guess I was a little surprised to understand why this event that had been going on for more than a decade and seemed to be really successful, um, faced a sponsorship problem. Um, what, what kind of, um, picture did they paint for you? Why do they, why were they, um, facing financial hard times? You know, this was a, a hard part of the story because I think even, even now, um, the organizers aren't quite sure what happened They'd had success over the years with getting sponsors to sign on and back the event financially. Um, in fact, in 2015, I think they they added a second Betty Bike Bash in Arizona, which means they had to ask for double the funding, and they got it. Um, so there was a real sense of, wow, we're, we're doing something right. This, this must matter to people. So it was really surprising last year when some longtime sponsors either cut... Um, their contribution or just simply sort of faded away. You know, I talked to some people who who just sort of wondered out loud, you know, is is the focus or the um, you know, the desire to support women's specific thing, is that is that fading? Is has that come and gone? Or, you know, is this not if if companies only have a certain number of dollars in their budget, maybe the Betty Bike Bash, um, didn't provide the value that they wanted. There was no real clear consensus, um, and it was really puzzling because of, of the success. So no no real one answer emerged um, when I dug into that. Yeah, I mean, it is a tough one with event sponsorship because, like, you know, so much of the event overhead is taken care of by sponsorships. It's like, you know, the money you pay to participate, yeah, that goes to covering some of it. But a lot of the venue fees and operation costs, and even if you want to pay some of the staff who are, you know, working hard to put something like that on, because I would imagine for maybe one or two people, like this is a year-round thing trying to put it on, um, you have to have 
um, additional money's coming in and that's where, you know, two grand, five grand, seven grand from a few different sponsors can go a long way to making something like this happen. Or if that goes away, you know, making it, um, fall apart. So who are the two women who co-founded this thing and were putting it on year in, year out? I mean, it sounds like they have their own lives outside of cycling and, you know, this is a huge undertaking, but something of a labor of love. So Amy Thomas and Sarah Raleigh are the two women who founded the event. And yeah, like you said, both of them had and have full-time jobs. Um, and, and that was one of the things. It, it wasn't like, oh, we, we lost some sponsor dollars so we can't pay ourselves anymore. It was like, we lost some sponsor dollars and we don't want to cut corners on doing the things that make this event so beloved. Um, so I think that's important to note too. And and, you know, we, we cover race promoters frequently around here, and it's pretty clear that a lot of them are doing this not, not for financial gain necessarily, but, but out of, you know, a real passion project. Fortunately, and I might be jumping the gun here, um, those two women, although I guess ownership of the event has, has switched hands for this year, they will still be um, very involved which is great news for the Betty Bike Bash. Yeah, so this event, you know, it's facing a sponsor shortfall. It's looking like the 2020 event is not going to go not going to happen. They're able to put on a 2019 event, but you know, things are looking to looking not great. And then all of a sudden they strike up a relationship with Team Evergreen, which is I believe the largest amateur cycling club here in Colorado. It's been around for a long time. Um it's based just west of Denver and they organize some big road events, the uh, Bob Cook Mount Evans Hill Climb. I think there's a couple of other events they put on. And it sounds like after some back and forth, Team Evergreen agreed to step in and help backstop the event financially to save it. Um, what sense did you get from Team Evergreen about why they wanted to save this event and, you know, come in and help out? Well, I think, you know, one of the things is that Jen Barber, the the um, executive director of Team Evergreen, she'd done the event before. Um, like many women in the Denver metro area, myself included. I mean, I that was the Betty Big Bike Bash was my first bike race before I even really kind of had an idea what bike racing was. So Jen had done the race and like a lot of people had no idea sort of what was going on behind the scenes with the financial struggles. And she happened to be with with Amy, one of the founders at a baseball game. And Amy kind of told her what was going on. And Jen's initial response was, what? Like the Betty Bike Bash? That can't go away. So she thought it was an impo- important enough to take back to um, to the club and, you know, say, what what do you guys think about this? It it really made sense for them. You know, they do. They put on these big events. The Triple Bypass is probably their biggest event and largest um, revenue generator. And the reason they put on these big events year after year is because then they can go and fund smaller events. Uh, they give back a ton to local nonprofits um, and the Betty, the Betty Bike Bash, Jen thought would fit really well into their portfolio of basically events and races that just get more people out on bikes. So the thing is saved. It's going forward for uh, 2020 and for the foreseeable future, and it's good. It's a it's a good story. I mean, what like what are your memories from your first time at the Betty Bike Bash? Like you know, it's this it's this low stress event. It's catered towards you know newcomers to the sport. It's your first bike race. Like Betsy, what can you tell us about your um, your first Betty Bike Bash and how did it? I don't know. How did it contribute to you deciding to pursue the sport further? 
Yeah, we've talked maybe on a couple podcasts ago about how I was never really a racer. I'm just someone who loves to ride bikes. And um, I was that way before I did the Betty Bike Bash. But because there is a category for, you know, never evers or beginners, you get out there and as much as I thought like I didn't like to race or didn't know how, because there was a category for maybe people like me, I I got to sort of play with racing and, and test it out a little bit um, and go faster than I may have before. And, you know, you finish and, and you think, okay, maybe, maybe racing's cool or maybe I don't like racing, but, but definitely that low stress, um, you know, good vibes, non hardcore atmosphere, I think really, allows a lot of women to to experiment with doing a bike race. What category did you enter? You know, they give a really good description on the website of, of like, okay, this is what sport is, this is what beginner is, this is what never ever is. And I remember being sort of on the verge of never ever and sport because it wasn't like I was a brand new rider. Um, I can't remember what I ultimately went with. I think I went with with sport. Did you like have clipless pedals or were you going like <laughs> high tops and like flat pedals and jorts? What, what was your setup like? Oh did you have jorts on? I, I did not have jorts. Okay. I, I, I might do it in jorts now. But um, no, I was on my first full suspension mountain bike, which was a Santa Cruz Superlight. Kind of Franken bike had two different brakes. Um, and I remember flatting in the like parking area. Yeah. There's goat heads out there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but you know, it's, it's a, it's a fun event. You've got lots of, there are lots of men there, but they're definitely sort of relegated to the sidelines. Um, happily, I think. And you know, that was, that was always an important thing to, to Amy and Sarah is like, you know, sorry guys, like this is the Betty bike bash. It's, it's for women. It's about women come come support come cheer us on but it's always going to be our thing did you did you win victory no i got fourth but i remember oh, being so just off the box yes, I remember. Oh. and that was when i was like oh my god maybe i'm competitive as like this girl like took off ahead of me at the very very end clearly i didn't know about sprinting and and i was like wow like there goes third place hmm yeah. So may, so the Betty Bike Bash with its, you know, wonderful equation of uh, low intimidation racing, yet the yes. thrill of racing and just missing the box is what helped steer Betsy over here towards a uh, an adulthood of racing bikes. I love it. It's a good equation. Um, well, it's Betsy's story on the Betty Bike Bash. It's on velonews.com right now. Check it out. Thank you so much to Betsy Welch for coming on the podcast this week. Uh, we will hear more from you coming up because gravel season is about to start and you're heading out to Mid-South and Dirty Kansas and Belgian Waffle and Bob's Chain Ring Massacre and all sorts of races I don't even know about. Um, so stay tuned to VeloNews.com and uh, the Velo News podcast. We will talk to you next week. Oh,